Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. As I'm recording this, we are now 50 days into the Biden-Harris administration. So far, they have taken a number of key steps to revive multilateralism as a pillar of American foreign policy. And over the past several weeks on this podcast, we've dug deep into how the new administration and new Congress can pursue a multilateralist agenda in areas like human rights, climate, health, peace, and security, among others. In today's episode, we use that frame of multilateralism to explore how the United States can embrace a feminist foreign policy. Now, a number of countries around the world have explicitly adopted a feminist foreign policy, including many key American allies. So what would a feminist U.S. foreign policy look like in practice? I put that question to Devin Cohn, Senior Advocate for Women and Girls at Refugees International. We kick off discussing what we mean when we say, quote, feminist foreign policy, and then we go into detail about the specific steps the administration and Congress can take to make a feminist foreign policy a reality. And as Devin Cohn says in this episode, at its heart, a feminist foreign policy is a multilateralist one as well. Today's episode is produced in partnership with the Better World Campaign as part of a series examining the opportunities for strengthening multilateral engagement by the new Biden-Harris administration and the incoming 117th Congress. To learn more and access additional episodes in this series, please visit getusback.org. And now here is my conversation with Devin Cohn of Refugees International. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. But a feminist foreign policy to me simply means a rights-based approach. So a rights-based approach across all parts of a nation's foreign policy. You know, to be more specific, it includes several key principles. And I would say the first one is that uh, women's rights are human rights. And you might have heard this phrase, especially because it was a resounding phrase that came out of the 1995 Beijing Conference on Women, and it still rings true today. We just celebrated the 25-year anniversary of that conference, but sadly, we have a long way to go for countries around the world and including the U.S. to really embrace this 
principle in our legislation and our actions. But being rights-based means a lot of things. Uh, it also means we must respect the rights recognized by international institutions and agreements, um, which you know we don't always do. In taking a rights-based approach, it also means that we need to support and defend those who are promoting the rights and freedoms of individuals and groups around the world. So that's one of the, the key points of a feminist foreign policy. But also, second, a, a feminist foreign policy is representative and inclusive. Um, it must include uh, all people that it's representing, and it must be responsive and accountable to stakeholders. So stakeholders would mean the citizens of the country it's representing, but also a feminist foreign policy recognizes that foreign policy decisions, especially foreign policy decisions of the United States, have far-reaching and often enormous impacts on the citizens of other countries. That's, that's kind of obvious. Um, but with that comes a huge responsibility. So a feminist foreign policy acknowledges that traditionally um, foreign policy, certainly in the U.S., but also in other countries around the world, uh, has been implemented through a white male dominated, uh, you know, white male dominated institutions and, and really um, has patriarchal and racist and discriminatory norms. That's, that's been the norm. I mean, I don't see how that can be debatable, but, but a feminist foreign policy doesn't look backwards to what was, what it's really looking to do is look forward to what can be. So with a feminist foreign policy, what it really says is that to make the most effective foreign policy decisions, you have to have diversity and institutions must change. So it is based on change and especially important, I think, is that there must be gender parity and representation. So there's a lot more to it, but um, I think another important point is that uh, feminist foreign policy promotes women's political participation, so that, that representation point, and it really promotes this political participation and leadership in all societies. So, you know, in fragile states, in, in states that are you know, working towards democracy um, in all the states that we work with and and uh, collaborate with. Um, it also, I think an important point, it embraces sexual and reproductive health rights. And I think that's important to know because it, it means that it allows women to actually make choices about their own lives and have a meaningful participation in public life. So that I think is, you know, important as we try to encourage women's political participation. To a certain extent, Biden has, you know, espoused many of the things that you just articulated. Yeah. He has not in the same way that say Justin Trudeau up north has, you know, been yeah. explicit about the United States charting a feminist foreign policy or adopting a feminist foreign policy. However, you know, Biden does have, you know, a I think multilateralist instinct. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what are the ways in which uh, multilateralism could enhance and support that kind of feminist foreign policy vision that you just articulated? Sure. Um, you know, multilateralism is part and parcel of a feminist foreign policy. I mean, a feminist foreign policy really, um, you know, values collaboration and participation and sharing uh, common values and, and with other countries and states and, and also um, with other institutions. So I think, you know, the fact that Biden says things like America is back or, you know, some of those, some of those phrases, what he's really saying is that the U.S. is 
ready and willing and excited to engage with other states, with multilateral institutions, with UN agencies, with the World Health Organization even. So I think that that, you know, that really demonstrates, like you said, perhaps not a official explicit feminine foreign policy, the way, like you said, Canada and Sweden and Mexico and Luxembourg and France. I mean, there's many um, uh, countries that are now adopting formal feminist foreign policies because they see the value in it. And they see that, you know, what, what has been done in the past has not always worked and it's time for a change. But, you know, the Biden administration is certainly um, demonstrating some of those qualities and values and principles of a feminist foreign policy. Uh, so I'd like to maybe drill down a little bit, bit and talk about some specific policies uh, that you would advocate the Biden-Harris administration adopt to, you know, in pursuit of, of some of these ideals, uh, specifically on gender-based violence. Mm-hmm. Can you describe for listeners sort of what what existed, uh, what policies existed to combat gender-based violence around the world at the end of the Obama administration that may now be built upon? Sure. Well, the Obama administration had an executive order that addressed uh, violence against women and girls and and gender-based violence. That executive order was important and did a lot, um, you know, and and engaged many agencies that that work both domestically and, and abroad. Um, but what the Biden-Harris administration has done is they've built upon that and they've really recognized that gender-based violence is a huge issue in the United States, but also in all the countries where we work in and engage with, especially, you know, the, the topics I work on, um, gender-based violence is a huge problem amongst displaced communities. Uh, there's limited resources, there's high stress, there's um, you know, limited legal recourse for women and girls, especially that are affected by gender-based violence. So, so the Biden-Harris administration has recognized this. And to be honest, they've been prepared, you know, before they even uh, took, took office, they've been prepared and have been, have been putting together policies and, um, and teams of people really to deal with this. So uh, you know, I mean, I, we can talk more about the White House Gender Policy Council, which was just announced and and created on Monday on International Women's Day. But but there were there were policies in place at the end of the Obama administration. The problem, and we don't have to go too far back, you know, and spend time uh, talking about the last administration. But the problem is, is that following the Obama administration, the Trump administration tr- really. Um, you know, dismantled a lot of these policies and really just showed over and over again through a variety of policies and actions that they really did not value women's equality and and gender equality and and really didn't value or really understand perhaps the extent of gender-based violence in particular. I mean, there were certainly people in civil service that, that worked on these issues very very diligently over the last four years, but but in terms of um, in terms of demonstrating a executive branch um, priority on this, 
that that just wasn't the case in the last administration. So, well, so what? So, if you were crafting the mm-hmm. uh, executive order on gender-based violence, combating it internationally, like what would it include, and, and what would you expect this this executive order to include from the Biden administration? Well, I would expect it to include a lot um, that that actually is included even in this executive order um, that was that was signed uh, on Monday. So. Mm-hmm. This White House Gender Policy Council, it it recognizes the uh, extensive nature of gender-based violence. And actually, it recognizes it, that it's increased dramatically during COVID-19. So we both had an existing problem of gender-based violence before the pandemic. It's been exacerbated now. And, you know, the Biden-Harris administration recognizes that and is putting into place some measures to address that. Um, there's also congressional measures and, and congressional legislation that I can talk about later. But you know, one of the one of the specific pieces of this um, White House Gender Policy Council is that you know it's even listed, I think, number four, I believe, in in what um, the federal government plans to do to advance gender equity and equality, and that is to prevent and respond to all forms of gender-based violence. So you know, they're they're coming up with the policies, the specific policies to do so. But one of the main pieces of this executive order that's really important is that it includes all the secretaries of agencies and um, other other high level and then senior level uh, staff members. So I, it's definitely more than 35 individuals that really have the you know power and decision-making abilities and, and budgets behind them. And so I think that you know what I would do is is do a lot of what they're doing already. So I'm I'm optimistic and hopeful and really pleased to see that from the time the report I published in December, telling you know recommending to the Biden Harris administration what they should do, to now you know there have been many steps taken. But it appears they read it, and I'll post a link yeah. to your policy <laughs> brief uh, mm-hmm. in the show notes of the website and on the website. Um, so you just briefly alluded mm-hmm. to, I believe, the International Violence Against Women Act, mm-hmm. which is an opportunity before Congress. Can you mm-hmm. describe what that act entails? Sure. I mean, it really just ensures that addressing violence against women is a key component of, of U.S. foreign policy. So there's a Violence Against Women Act already that's domestically focused, and obviously the International Violence Against Women Act is is more um, uh, internationally focused. So it really it 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 does a variety of things, but one of the key things it does is also put money behind some of these efforts, and I think that's what's really important. I was going to say that before, and that is that you know there's a lot of policies that can be um, written, <laughs> they can be signed into action, they can be um, supported in rhetoric, but the resources and money behind those those efforts needs to be there. So, so, so can you I, give me like an example of what that would look like, like a policy that is ostensibly a good policy that has no funding behind it, but can be made robust if uh, the International Violence Against Women Act is, is a funded you know, sure. legisla- um, piece of legislation? Yeah, I mean, one of the things you know within policies often that that is that is noted is that there needs to be training. There needs to be training on. I mean, even in overseas. So, for example, with with um, organizations that the U.S. government funds to implement programs overseas. So, programs that prevent, mitigate, 
and respond to gender-based violence. There are those programs, but sometimes those programs don't have funding to adequately train people, to train people on how to um, you know, address survivors of gender-based violence, especially uh, programs we have to, for example, train police and law enforcement in other countries and, and military in other countries. We need money behind that to say, yes, they'll be sensitized to how to deal with, you know, how to appropriately and effectively deal with and, and respond to survivors of gender-based violence. But how do they do that? How do they know how to do that? Is there any training budget behind that? Mm. So those are the kinds of things that, that need to be resourced. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, gender-based funding internationally, not just from the U.S., but overall for gender-based violence programming is woefully inadequate. So it's not just the U.S., um, but that's, that's something that needs to be addressed, especially given COVID-19. I know there's a lot of other priorities, but, you know, responding to and preventing gender-based violence is really an essential service. And I think that needs to be both stated in all the policy documents, but also supported. To that end, um, what opportunities exist uh, to more robustly support policies uh, to ensure gender equality or, you know, basic, you know, rights for uh, women who are refugees around the world or in uh, situations of migration, forced or not? I know this is, you know, a corner of the policy world that you have, you know, spent your career studying. Um, so what would you recommend the administration do to enhance um you know, policies at the intersection of gender and refugees and migration? Well, I think the first step is they should include them. So, <laughs> well, that's a good first step. <laughs> yeah. There I mean, you go. not to say that they aren't, but I think explicitly include them because it is true. There's people that focus their careers like myself on, on this intersection, intersection of, of gender and, and forced displacement or even just forced displacement. You know, I mean, um, I've, I've done a variety of things, but, but certainly right now I'm focusing on, on gender and forced displacement. And so, and so there are people that focus on forced displacement. There are people that focus on development. There are people that focus on really niche things and that gives them an expertise, but it also can not blind them, but you know, there, there's some blinders on there and they can not intentionally, but, but unintentionally miss other things. So I think that Every policy that relates to development, um, relates to humanitarian assistance, um, you know, all the policies and programs that we have and support and that we will enact, I think needs to have a gender analysis, you know, needs to take a gender analysis with it. And by that, I mean, you need to determine how is this going to affect women and girls, but also how do we include displaced people? You know, when you have a development policy in X country, you know, people and policymakers need to think about, does that, does that country host displaced people? Does it host refugees? Does it have asylum seekers? Does it have stateless people? And are they included in this? Are they explicitly included? So I just think that, um, you know, that's the first step is to include them. The second step is to, while including them, recognize the unique challenges they have. So again, if you're enacting and uh, policies related to development or 
you know, uh, spending money on on overseas assistance that that relates to development. Um, do does that development include refugees and asylum seekers and displaced people? But also, do they have different needs? Do they have different legal rights? Are they included? If you're giving assistance to bolster a healthcare system, a national healthcare system and infrastructure, is that national healthcare system including the large numbers of displaced people that are there? Because oftentimes a lot of the countries that we are assisting with our overseas foreign assistance, you know, they they are struggling countries and they're often countries that are close to other countries that that have experienced conflict and are conflict affected. So you know, many of those countries have large populations of displaced people, whether internally displaced or asylum seekers or refugees from neighboring countries. And so I think ensuring that the policies we enact that relate to these countries um, also include refugees and asylum seekers. And then finally, I think that here in our own country, I mean, there's a huge issue at the southern border with how we have in the past really blocked people from asylum. And I think, um, you know, those policies really are, be, they're being changed, but they have to be changed and they have to be um, changed thoughtfully with with all of these things in mind. Um, when it comes to engaging with like multilateral institutions specifically to address uh, issues around gender and migration and gender and uh, refugee issues, you know, is there like one or two policy um, opportunities that you see are sort of ripe for the picking? Is there something that the administration, you know, ought to be doing like right away? Um. I think rather than within multilateral institutions and engagement, I think what's, to be honest, more important is, is addressing and addressing our own issues with migration and refugees and asylum seekers and demonstrating and our commitment to the protection of, of people and to the international legal conventions and legal obligations that we have. And so I think that that, first of all, reestablishing that credibility and leadership is important. And so I think both between how we, uh, you know, revamp the asylum system, I think that's really important. But then number two, I think we can demonstrate leadership in refugee resettlement, which has been decimated over the past four years and is just ramping up again. But um, you know, the Biden administration, the Biden-Harris administration has committed to drastically increasing that, that presidential determination on how many refugees can be resettled into the United States, but they have not taken action yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they haven't, um, you know, they haven't actively changed that number in this fiscal year, which uh, advocates like myself and others are really pushing for. And so I think that's number one, because that is engaging with multilateral institutions. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees is the one that is the, is the organization that identifies and refers um, individuals, refugees for resettlement. And they, the US was the leader in that, um, you know, years ago. And since the last administration, we have not been. And so I think that that's that's certainly a way to re-engage with 
mm-hmm. a international organization, a multilateral institution to demonstrate that we care about the protection and rights of people that are on the move, that are my that that are refugees and and that need protection and that we will do that immediately. So I think that's you know that's not gender related or mm-hmm. focused on women and girls, but it certainly provides the most at-risk women and girls that are already refugees and already have spent time in a host country where they really can't survive, it provides them a lifeline. And I think we need to step up and do that immediately. Um, Before I let you go, is there anything else you'd want to plug or or highlight in terms of, um, you know, policy ideas going forward that the administration or Congress may, may sort of harness in this space? Sure. Um, I think I do want to talk a little bit about how Congress can supplement and complement these actions and and general policy um, recommendations I have for the Biden and Harris administration. You know, Congress has, on a bipartisan, um, in a bipartisan way, have introduced several pieces of legislation that really speak to um, the issues of displaced women and girls and women and girls in humanitarian settings. And you mentioned one, the International Violence Against Women Act, but also there's um, an act called the Safe from the Start Act, and it was introduced uh, before in the previous Congress, but it's been introduced again for 2021. And it's got bipartisan support because what it really does is it says, it, it, it instructs the U.S. government on how it needs to spend money based on gender-based violence. So what it does is it ensures that that U.S. government money goes to organizations that are prioritizing the essential services of preventing and responding to gender-based violence. It says that gender-based violence is a life-threatening issue in emergencies that needs to be addressed as a priority. So I think that's key and that's exciting that that's been reintroduced and that it's got bipartisan support. Um, There are some others as well, but I think um, another, you know, there's a Refugee Sanitation Facility Act and that sounds very specific, which it is. And it really says similarly that US government money should go to organizations that are prioritizing the safety of bathrooms in refugee Mm -hmm. settings, which sounds again, really, Kind of specific, but but sanitation facilities and bathrooms in refugee settings are often don't have locks, don't have lighting, and that's where a lot of gender-based violence happens. So, you know, Congress as well and our representatives are looking into these issues and are taking action, and I think that's really important. Um, the final thing I want to plug actually is is support for. UNFPA and UNFPA is the UN agency that's responsible for sexual and reproductive health. And during the last administration, we gave zero money to UNFPA um, because of political reasons and you know political backlash, and, and you can imagine why. But but this administration has reinstated funding to UNFPA, not as much as I have recommended, but you know, I expect and hope that that will continue to increase because, again, I think as a feminist foreign policy approach um, requires, you know, women and girls have to have choices and reproductive health or else they won't be able to engage in the 
you know, formal economy as well as they could. They won't be able to access opportunities. They won't be able to participate in political life the way, um, you know, we want people to have the choices to do. So, so I think those things are really important and there's legislation around that as well. So, you know, between, between Congress and the Biden-Harris administration and all the really amazing women and men that are working within the administration already um, and will continue to be appointed to do so, I think, you know, I'm certainly really hopeful and, and uh, you know, I feel empowered and motivated and inspired and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully things will, will change and improve. And, and I will say that International Women's Day, as you know, I think was just Monday and the theme was choose to challenge. And I think uh, that's what we need to do. I think a feminist foreign policy is, is important. And I think that we as the U.S. are moving in that direction, um, but there's more to do. There's a lot more to do. And I think, uh, I think there's plenty of people to start implementing these policies and improving them. Uh, well, Devin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to the Better World Campaign for partnering with the podcast on this series. And of course, thank you to Devin Cohn for her thoughts in this episode. To view other episodes in this series, again, please visit getusback.org. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye.